Welcome to One Weird Trick, a podcast giving advice for better living. Your hosts, Aaron and Cecily, have zero legal, medical, or psychological qualifications to give advice. Please consider any advice you receive from them as being from well-meaning, but human and imperfect friends. Please consult actual professionals for any serious legal, medical, or mental help you may need. And now, here's Cecily and Aaron. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to One Weird Trick. Thanks for sticking with us through the holiday hiatus. Happy New Year. 2020. 2020. Hot damn. It's here. It's happening. I hope everybody had a very restful and relaxing holiday season. I know I did. I got to do almost nothing except for what I wanted to do, which is play video games and watch movies for an entire week. And I haven't been able to do that in a long time, probably since since the last last Christmas break. (laughs) Right. Uh, But yeah, it was uh, relaxing and restful. Cecily, what do you think? Because I, I I saw on like the places where people post this stuff and discuss it. There's you know everyone making their New Year's resolutions. Um, have you ever made New Year's resolutions? What do you think about New Year's resolutions? I think I've made resolutions in the past. Yeah. As a way to do you know what everyone else is doing. Like yeah, you know what? It is a good time to start fresh, and it kind of is. Yeah. Um, you know, over Christmas break. I can only speak for myself here, but I gained a bunch of weight. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, I think it's fun. We call it winter fluff. And it's just, you know, while you're sitting around on your ass playing video games for a week, you're eating kind of- Eating all that good leftover eating Christmas Eating the leftovers ham. and, you know, the cookies and the candies and things. And mm-hmm. now January 1st, when you go back to work, whenever that is, is a good time to shed it. Mm-hmm. So I can see where the temptation is, but um, New Year's resolution- I feel like are kind of a way to set yourself up for failure. Yeah, I've often most wondered, of the time. I've often wondered why that is. Kind of like you know how like when you're in the middle of the Christmas season, and if you're having a good one anyway, everything seems like it's full of like light and love and happiness and positivity, and everyone thinks like, oh, why can't it be like this all year round? And I feel like New Year's resolutions are the same thing. It's like something culturally that we all go along with because it's something that like we find out about as little kids, and you see adults making them. But it's like there's nothing really special about January 1st that makes these and, and everyone feels pressured to make them. So you do whether you're, whether you're really ready for that change or not, you just kind of for and then you don't do it and then you feel bad about it. Right. You know, there's something really satisfying about the calendar flipping over into that new page. And it's like, yes, this is a clean start. But, you know, our brains and our minds and our bodies don't really work that way. No, but I do think that you and I have like stumbled upon a few traditions that really work well for our relationship. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can present these few uh, weird New Year's tricks that you can More put in one. place in your relationships or in your personal life. Because I'm not big on New Year's resolutions, but I'm really big on New Year's reflections. Yeah, our traditions, Christmas traditions, family traditions. I'm all about that. Yeah. So one of the things we do is, and we started doing this in the last couple of years, is we go on a hike on New Year's Day. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing because it's the trails are almost always very lightly trafficked because who the hell gets up early on New Year's Day after you've had all the champagne from the night before? <laughs> 
and get up early and drive to some godforsaken part of the wilderness of wherever you live in. In the middle of winter. In the middle of winter. And and you hike the trails. And like last year, like I think snow was falling. Mm-hmm. And it was really pretty this year. It was actually inclemently warm weather. But it's fun because you go and you walk on the trails and like you, you barely run into people. And the people you do see are like, you know, they're all up and they're 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 hitting the trails too. And mm-hmm. everyone's like, oh, happy New Year's. And it's really fun. Mm-hmm. And since the trails are lightly... Uh, trafficked, it's a good chance, like, because we, we did, like, an all-day hike, and it's a great chance to just kind of, like, you know, hey, let's uh, just just to catch up with each other and talk about how the last year went and the relationship and, you know, talk about kind of problems or successes, and uh, it's, like I said, it's not a, res- it's not a resolution. It's more of just kind of, like, recon- it's, it's a great way to reconnect and start the year in a positive way. Mm-hmm. I agree. Maybe that's a, a a hike for you. Might be a walk through your neighborhood, or it might be some. Other, but like you know, going going outside and getting some physical activity in, and giving yourself a situation where you can just talk to each other. And I found that like like going on long drives and hikes are great times to talk because like if you just sit down, and you're facing each other. That's kind of intimidating. Mm-hmm. But like when you're driving or talking, and you you don't have it's it's it, it's a lot more disarming to have these kind of conversations. I think. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you're together, you're doing something else that's not really preoccupying your mind too much. So you can focus on the other person. But yeah, that was without that pressure there. And I will say that we this is a New Year's Day tradition, but it, it's something we try to do at least once a month also mm-hmm. to maintain throughout the year. I feel like the New Year's ones are always a little bit more special. And I also, oh, yeah. as, I'm th- as I'm saying this, I'm thinking there's probably people like in Manitoba who are like, fuck you. It's negative <laughs> 20. We'd literally die. I'm like, okay, maybe you can change this to like a spring cleaning Our hike listeners tradition. in Australia are like, my, are, I'm yeah, going to suffocate outside. Our, the, our backyards are on fire. <laughs> uh, we are dying. And I get it. Sometimes you have to modify your traditions based on the local climates and customs. But I do feel like there should be some kind of thing. Maybe it's on your wedding anniversary. Maybe it's on your birthday. Maybe anything that's special to you. And it, it's also like if you're single, um, I love going on solo hikes. Like I found um, had amazing reflections when I can just go away uh, to a place that doesn't have cell phone service. There's no Internet. I don't have uh, a blog to look at. Uh, I don't have news to inform myself with. And, I, and, and I'm, I'm stuck just kind of thinking for like four or five, six hours. It's kind of like extended shower thoughts. Yeah. 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 You can really, you know, shower thoughts, things occur to you. But in these hikes, you can really just expound upon that and just sort of discover answers or just work through a problem yeah so that's one weird trick uh we have another tradition that we've been doing for almost six years now and it just keeps getting better and better Mm -hmm. i'm so glad we thought of this can you outline what i'm talking about to the people so we have a private twitter it's a super secret twitter super secret private twitter account that we're never ever going to make public Mm -hmm. so don't ask (laughs) Uh, it's where we put down all of our inside jokes or, you know, funny quotes from TV shows or movies that we want to recite back to each other, make part of our daily conversation, um, ideas we have, epiphanies we share. Successes in our lives. Successes. 
um, not so much failures because this is a overwhelmingly positive thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, there is some, although there is some like in 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 some of their trials we've had, some of the grim gallows humor makes it in the because essentially anytime we belly laugh, <laughs> yeah, or like cry laughing, we try to summer after we, we recover, we try to summarize what the thing is and we tweet that. Yeah. Uh, so and there's also some not safe for work stuff in there that's yep. why it's super private <laughs> yep yep maybe some not safe for life stuff in there yeah and uh so we go through on new year's eve or day somewhere whenever, around new year's yeah yeah somewhere where we're feeling in the right mindset to read through these and uh laugh all over again yeah Just we do kind it of like, like it's it. like a time capsule for the year yeah. and then the past year's that we've been doing it and we've been doing it for so long like like it takes because uh, you know when we first did it, it was just something funny we did on the uh, and it took like 15 20 minutes to run through and we laughed and but now it's like there's like a lot of real history and it takes it took us a couple days and in, in, in segments to work our way through but it's so great to go back and see like oh my god yeah that's when this happened yeah or, or to say like this thing that we now say to each other every day this it, was just, the it started on this day because yeah. the you can do this with anything like a notebook or a personal blog or whatever, a Google Doc, whatever you want to use. But I, what I like about Twitter is it gives you like timestamps yeah. too. And, and the way I used to, ha- and you can like reply to it if you want to amend it in the future. Like, oh, what was this about? We sometimes we read back through them and we're like, what the fuck? There's were a few. We talking there's a few about? from six years ago where we the inside joke is so inside that we don't remember. We're like, what the fuck? What was why? What were we thinking? What? How does this make sense? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, sometimes we tweet things when we're, you know, we've been like drinking a little bit and uh, <laughs> or whatever. It doesn't quite make sense. So we'll amend those and then you have time stamps for that too, which is fun. Yeah. But it's a great little way and the the way um the way we do it is we have a on my well, I, I think you do the same thing, but I have an alternate Twitter client that it's just set to this particular account that way cuz the thing is like I'm always worried that like, oh, I'm going to be you know, uh, horny on Maine. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to post something on my public Twitter that's meant for the private Twitter. But like, if you keep them as separate clients and like, it's on a completely separate screen, I got to navigate to mm-hmm. it's like that, 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 that really lessens the chance of that. Um, but it's nice. Cause you get, you know, I got my main account that I use the, you know, bald move and my personal Twitter and all that kind of stuff. And I got this other one that's tucked away. Yeah. It's always there for when we want to insert a new memory. Yeah. You want to go through, should we do the top, five funniest ones in the these last are, year i don't know if these are the top five funniest these are the top five funniest that we care to share <laughs> that we we're allowed to say on national that our producer will le- let us leave in um so who goes is it me i go first yeah you, you these, go these first. are in no particular order uh the first one is you put the bitch in habitual offender <laughs> pretty good this a lot of a lot of it's a wordplay the next one is uh you made spider face at me but now I know it's also getting racked face. So I think this one requires some context. Maybe, yeah. Because like the year before, when we were floating down the Little Miami River, mm-hmm. a truly enormous uh, huntsman spider, or, or is it a wolf spider? I, I forget what they are. We, we, in, 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 in the largest Huntsman's spider. the Australian ones that are yeah, burning in fires They're not right that now. horrific, but the largest spiders we have in the Midwest, when they're fully grown, have a, like a, a leg span approximately the size of like a coffee cup. Mm-hmm. And these things can walk on water, which I found to my horror. And one of them had crawled up Cecily's belly and was like nestled in her (laughs) decolletage. And I made this like really intense face and moved towards her and just in one smooth motion, scooped the thing up from her chest and flung it from us. (laughs) And now 
I, apparently that face is the exact same face I make when I lightly <laughs> rack myself. Like I think I dropped my phone in my lap and it like just gave the gave gave that testy just a yeah. It's just the look of like wide eyed horror. Yeah. Where and, you're kind of frozen and you're not sure what the move is. And, but. and the last time I made that face, you had a spider, a hideous spider crawling on you. So yeah, that's, getting rocked face. that's the rest of the joke. S- spider face. Uh, here is my review of Baja Blast Zero upon first tasting it. Cause we, yeah, if anyone is following our Twitch adventure, our briefly lived Twitch adventures, then yes. uh, we're, we're big proponents of Taco Bell culture. Yes. And they had uh, a aberration of baja blast we love baja blast everyone loves baja Blast. i love coke zero i love red bull zero yeah they're my favorite types of diet beverage so where could you go wrong with baja blast zero baja blast zero baja blast zero tastes like a watermelon had sex with a cantaloupe and then blew its brains out <laughs> and that is if you've tasted it the perfect way to describe that flavor yeah yeah absolutely the color even is described in that mm-hmm. <laughs> okay the next one is uh is us to deciding on whether or not to make breakfast mm-hmm. <laughs> when I I think it's like it was like 10 o'clock and you were ready to get up and you were hungry and I was still kind of lazy and and and, and rolling around in bed and you said uh Aaron you miss 100% of the breakfast you don't make and that has solid become life advice solid life advice has become a solid catchphrase for mm-hmm. when we want to get out of bed each morning and then uh this is the finest example of cat bullying from the year uh, I said to our cat, Aria, the state of Ohio has declared you a nuisance animal. There are no limit to the number of you that could be hunted and killed. And I always say this to her, like, I, you know, I'm, I'm grabbing her, I'm scratching her face, I'm looking at her real sweet. But it always tickles me the, to casual, trash to our cat. the casual verbal cruelty that we inflict upon her. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but it's her fault it for looking so much like a raccoon. Yeah. And being- There's no season. There's no licenses you need. There's no stamps. You just find them and kill them, and there's it, it doesn't matter. Right. Literally doesn't matter. <laughs> so yeah, that's our those are our New Year's New Year's traditions. Um, if you guys want to share yours with us, you're welcome to. But no resolutions. No resolutions. We don't give a shit about res- what you're resolving. We want to know what your solid practices, enduring practices that make you feel better on the New Year's. Love to hear those. Yeah, or I mean, people make resolutions and they work. I'd love to hear that too. Yeah. I want to talk about something else. It's not near and dear to my heart. Okay. But I find very funny. All right. Um, the Royals. There's some news this week that the Duke and Duchess of Sussex have decided to step back from their family. Now, who is that for people that don't give a shit about Royals? That's... uh. Well, if you don't give a shit about royals, then. But I know there's like there's like a prince that's like the kind of goofy looking one that's going to inherit the throne, and there's the prince that's the William? hot one. No, Prince. I think his name's Prince. I think he's Prince. Prince William. Is he? I don't know. I, don't, I really don't know. Okay. But Harry and Meghan. Okay. Meghan is the American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who has, according to the, they're the ones that are essentially a Netflix romance you know movie right something yeah. like she was an actress an american actress and she Prince went swept over her and, off her feet and now she's a princess and she's right. got a pet frog that sings duke to and her. duchess yeah. <laughs> well they did a couple of really shocking things one that he married an american mm-hmm. uh the other that she's black ish black ish mm-hmm. um and also they started their own instagram account Really? Separate from the royals. A, a, a non-royal Instagram account. Yeah. Hmm. 
Well, it actually is a royal Instagram account. It's called Royal Sussex, something okay. like that. Um, and on their Instagram account this week, they said that they were stepping back from the royal family. What does that even mean? Because as far as I can tell, the royal family exists only to uh, to, well, let me to, read this. to increase tourism in, in the, the British Isles. Yeah. If you don't give a shit and you're not following this, then let me just read it for you. Mm. Uh, they said, after many months of reflection and internal discussions, we have chosen to make a transition this year and starting to carve out a progressive new role within this institution. We intend to step back as senior members of the royal family and work to become financially independent while continuing to fully support Her Majesty the Queen. It is with your encouragement, particularly over the last few years, that we feel prepared to make this adjustment. We now plan to balance our time between the United Kingdom and North America, continuing to honor our duty to the Queen, the Commonwealth, and our patronages. The geographic balance will enable us to raise our son with an appreciation for the royal tradition into which he was born. And the gutter culture of the colonies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, they, yeah, so they quit their family. So they're doing, like, and I essentially... I wish all the power to them. They're doing the Lady Sybil thing from yeah. Downton Abbey, where she's like, I don't want to be, I want to, I'm going to work in America in the garage with my husband. Right. And earn, they're going to, so they're going to earn their own money. Yeah. Which... That's a little rich. Well, like they, I mean, they can literally like just release a book and be independently wealthy for the rest of their life. I mean, but. I'm looking back through this Instagram page and it seems like they are spend all of their time dedicated to many different charities and causes. And I think that's great. And yeah. if that's what they want to do with their time, then yes, please. I wonder what it means to carve out a more progressive role within the monarchy. They're moving they're fifty percent of the time moving to America. But what is yeah, but what does that know. mean progress? Because like Cause it's not more progressive over here. <laughs> Well, no, what I'm saying is like, what does that what does that mean? Because to me, I guess, what it's just, it's kind of kooky that there is still king kings and queens, you yeah. know, especially when like again they're just purely figureheads. It's it's really wild, right. and as American, I don't fully understand the relationship between the British people and their subjects and their kings and queens. I, I don't know what like because to me, it's like the whole idea of a monarchy is inherently regressive. Mm-hmm. So, like, what does it mean to, like, progressing that would be abolishing the monarchy? What's, I, are they are they doing it in their, they're abolishing the monarchy in their family? I think maybe the progressive part of this is that they're the first ones ever to just say that they're, they're, they're out. To just renounce their, yeah, hmm, that can't be true. No, there's been, well, people are comparing Megan to this other figure, uh, her name is Willis Simpson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who I guess Prince Edward many years ago just renounced his throne, hmm. like he was next in line, and he just renounced it to marry her. Hmm. But they were also Nazi sympathizers, so not uh, really an apt comparison there. Yeah, they were. And they also, were making time to be more regressive. <laughs> yeah, and also Harry's not anywhere near the throne, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, he's all. like fourth, or he's like there's a lot of things yeah. that have to go wrong for him to to wind him on the throne. But the funniest part about this to me is that. They didn't tell the queen or anyone. Really? Yeah. So then Buckingham Palace released this statement where they said... Uh, oh, release the corgis! Bring them back <laughs> to me, my children! They said, we understand the desire to take a different approach, but these are complicated issues that will take time to work through. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. It's It seems progressive to me. The one part of the... the here's the thing. The and one reading part- the comments is disgusting. Well, that goes without saying, but it's Instagram yeah. and the it's fact that people take wild. the time to comment on any of this stuff is yeah, kind of weird exactly. and gross. But and yeah, I, I found something that kind of broke my heart. Hmm. 
one of the things I found charming about the royal family, particularly uh, Queen Elizabeth, is that her she does keep the stable of royal corgis, and mm-hmm. they're adorable. And I just found out that she is no longer taking on new ones, and that she's letting the ones are that are around die off as they age because she doesn't think it's responsible to take on new ones because she's so Aww. near to the end of her own life. This is true. So now her stable of corgis has dwindled to perhaps I don't know I don't know what the, what, what the state of her the, the royal corgis are now, but that's kind of sad. I'll take one. And it's like, I mean, it's, it's weird because this is like, I mean, this is a definitely more humane version, but there's a, a little bit of this idea of like a pharaoh of old, like if she dies, like throw the corgis on the funeral pile or light them <laughs> with it. It's like, can not Prince Charles like love a corgi? How like, many is, years are, are left these on her the current corgis? corgis? No one else is allowed to pet them or love them? Like. Yeah, I mean they are adorable dogs. I think they would they they would live out their lives and and happiness. And I don't know, it's a weird kind of uh, pharaonic thing she's doing. But I kind of get it. I yeah. kind of get it. Yeah, kind of get it. But yeah, that was just uh, it's very interesting. I've never really been invested in the royals, but that was that was fun. It's a fun thing to read today. You are a thousand percent more invested than I am. Speaking of British royalty. You want to talk about cats? <laughs> yeah, let's talk about cats. Um, we saw the movie over the holiday break. Yes. Um, how? I mean, I don't even know where to begin on this because it reminded me a lot of, I know Jim and I in the early days of Blue Yonder had this discussion about um, uh, what's that relationship uh, or you, like the hostages have with the hostage takers? Oh, Stockholm syndrome. Stockholm syndrome, but entertainment. Like I think his story, and it, it, I could, I, I'll look to the controller to see if I get this wrong. He, he ironically started watching Yu-Gi-Oh and wound up actually genuinely invested. And I had a similar experience with like the Power Rangers because I was way too old. I'm significantly older than my brothers and sisters, um, but I assumed the parental authority over them from the time we got off school to the time mom and dad returned from work. Just parental authority when it came to terms to choosing television? Well, I mean, that was one of my responsibilities. Um, so we we kind of had negotiated like, okay, I get to watch this and you get to watch that. And like they hated stuff I liked and I, they, I hated stuff they liked. They liked the Power Rangers. And I remember, and I didn't have to watch this and I often didn't. I would like do my homework or reading a book and I roll my eyes. But then you start noticing like, hey, the Pink Ranger's kind of hot. And then just sheer absorption, just being forced to watch. You start caring about the plot lines and you, you kind of like scream in horror as it's happening to you. But it's, it's like Jeff Goldblum in The Fly. Like, well, what are you going to do? I'm spitting out teeth and I got a mandible now. <laughs> I, I kind of unironically love the Power Rangers. And this has happened to Cats because I like Broadway musicals. Um, I don't know why. But I, maybe I was exposed to them at an early age. But I like the pageantry. I like the costumes. I like the singing. I think the show tunes are catchy. I think they're moving. I I appreciate them as a form of art. But I've always found cats to be completely inscrutable. And it became such an internet meme when the movie was announced that I kind of uh, was ironically in for the cats memes. You've seen the stage production? I saw it once when I was like 23 or 24. And I, I saw it from the nosebleed sections of the Aronoff. So the stage is roughly the size of a postcard if you if you hold it at arm's length. And I'm just like, I don't understand anything that's going on. This is the most bewildering things. These are these these cats introducing themselves, and I what is the plot? And 
And I remember when the movie came out, we watched a trailer. You're like, oh, my God, it's going to be a train wreck. And I'm like, I honestly don't know what this is about. So we watched it. So we watched the 1998 movie version. They just made a movie out of the Broadway show. So it's staged very much like a play. Yeah, but it's like if you have to pay like a thousand dollars to get a a seat as good as you get watching this 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 movie version of the play. Yeah. And being up close and being able to hear everything and understand and see the performance is still what, that's fucking bewildering. I don't understand what's going on. Yeah, that was my first time seeing it. It was earlier this year, and I loved it immediately. Did you? Because I thought you were hot with... nonsense, and it's right up my alley. <laughs> Just, uh, so maybe you've conf- uh, infected me, but I thought we were on the same page of being this is ridiculous and stupid and dumb, but people are making a lot of funny memes with it, so why not, you know? Yeah. So then we saw the Cats movie over the holiday break. Mm-hmm. And it was not good. No. No, not when you've seen the 1998 musical version. And mm-hmm. if everyone who's losing their minds over how good they think the 2019 version is, go back and watch that. Do yourself a favor. But here's the thing is it did unlock this part that I found the story much more comprehensible because they actually explicitly state things that are only implied indirectly in song. Right. And I, I start, So I, I got the central, I guess... Uh, drama such as it is of this is because the story of cats is like there's this band of cats and they have this tradition where once a year they decide which of them is going to go to cat heaven Mm -hmm. and the entire play is them just introducing themselves and making an argument about why they're a special cat that should go to this cat heaven and then one of them gets chosen and they go into the cat heaven the end and this is based off of a T.S. Eliot collection of poems called Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats. And that's so, ba- yeah, when you have that information in your head, it makes a lot more yeah, sense. Yeah, kind of like if you watch like Singing in the Rain and you didn't know that Singing in the Rain is what Gene Kelly came up with when the studio gave him a whole bunch of like also ran songs that had no connection to each other. And he's like, what can I do to make a movie out of all these things that don't go together and what kind of framing? And he comes up with this kind of movie and a movie and a movie mm-hmm. frame. And it's like ridiculous. But if you like, oh, under constraints he was given, it's actually kind of amazing. I thought Andrew Lloyd Webber just was like super fucking high in the 70s <laughs> and doing all kinds of drugs and just like, yeah, fucking cats, man, cats. <laughs> they got these cosmic religion. Weird. But no, he adapted all these kind of like sometimes verbatim old poems about cats mm-hmm. and that kind of like okay well this is not creative excess and just you know someone destroying the brain with cats this is actually a creative limitation that he's working under (laughs) yeah and that's the other kind of fulcrum that like shifted me into stock full-on stockholm syndrome relationship with cats yeah and uh, a lot of these songs are really catchy they get stuck in your head yep and then i started watching the bonus features that you can see on youtube about how they how, how how they get the performances of the cats, like mm-hmm. so how they're cat-like and how they do a whole bunch of improvisation in the margins based on these three words. And like, I'm now it's like just gets more and more fucking brilliant. Yeah, I guess every stage production they do, they each of the cats are given like three words, three adjectives that describe their character. And mm-hmm. they use that to motivate their uh improv yeah type of movements because there's always like main cats on the stage dancing and singing but then all the other cats in the jellical tribe are off in the margins and they're like pawing each other and rolling around and doing cat things and they're like that's not scripted they're just doing all that organically based Mm -hmm. on 
these feline movements, movements and behaviors they've been taught and the three adjectives that they've been given. Mm-hmm. And that's fucking like and the fun thing now I'm doing when we're going through and watching the 1998 movie is watching a different cat every time. And seeing how they're expressing, their, this is fuck. Because we I'm went sorry, from watching this it once. We went from watching it. this once to watching the movie to watching the stage production again to compare it. And now we've been watching Cats every night for the past we go to week. Bed. Our our ne- our new bedtime wind down routine is watching like thirty minutes, a different thirty minute section of this Cats movie. It's good. It's really really good. Because like also, if you like shit talking your cat, this this Cats. Right. I mean, just go in with the premise that it's just cats. Like literal actual cats and how self-important. Yeah, how delusional and up their ass they are about right. like like this railway cat's talking about how he single-handedly keeps the northern but, British mail train running on time and is responsible for everything, but he really just catches mice. Yeah, but he thinks he's the one running everything. Right. That's that's inherently funny and very cat-like. Yeah, and knowing that it's got these real serious Britishisms in it. Yes. Uh, helps give a little bit of context to what they're saying so they're less like made up words and but there is a little bit of job jabberwocky yeah he does and but i think that's fun too like you know the jabberwocky in isolation is a ridiculous poem but like part of the whole you know lewis carroll through the looking glass alice in wonderland universe it's really it's it's really cool and creepy it's got its own little thing it's doing and Mm -hmm. i think that's what this these cats poems do too yeah that's so, our yeah. cat's review. That's our that's because that's and uh, I feel like that uh, we shoved this here because like we want to talk about it, but like we know that like this uh, Broadway musicals and especially cats aren't exactly in the bald move over. <laughs> And yeah. but the type of people that would like it are probably the type of people that are listening to one weird trick. So I don't know. We just just want to make some some comments on cats in passing. Right. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Hey, everybody. Exciting news. We have a new Patreon page for people who are willing and able to help support us creating the content that you're now enjoying. For as little as $5 per month, you can help us produce our podcast, access our monthly Patreon-only live stream with the whole Swizzbold crew, exclusive subreddit flares so people will know you're a proud supporter, and ad-free podcasts. Find out more and get signed up quick and easy at patreon.com slash swizzbold. Okay, it's time for the meat of the One Weird Trick podcast, where we consider requests for advice, and, and we give them. If you would like to request advice from us, you can do so at OWT, the initials for One Weird Trick, at swizzbold.com. You can follow along all of our social medias, at swizzbold, wherever, whichever uh, social media tickles your fancy. And if you have any questions or follow... And if you have any follow-up comments or you got some advice for uh, some of the advices, then you can send that in there. You know, yeah, it's, it's feedback. Yeah. Uh, would you like to start with our first petitioner? Yes. Um, these names have all been changed to protect the identities. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sometimes we go with the one you suggest. If, if you suggest a name, we'll go with it. Um, but if you do not, we just come up with a random anonymous name because this is some sensitive stuff we're talking about. Yeah. We wanted to protect your identity. This one is from Middle Kid. Middle Kid says, I have an interesting family dynamic. My younger brother and I are gay atheists. My older sister is married with five children and her family are devout members of a small conservative Christian church. My parents are... Sounds like her quiver is full. (laughs) My parents are both Catholic. The family occasionally will clash over our differences, but it always settles down. Recently, though, things have come to a head. 
My boyfriend and I recently broke up. Our lives were moving in different directions, and while unfortunate, it was a logical thing to do. My mother took this breakup as an opportunity to suggest I look into the Catholic same-sex attraction group called Courage. Reading the testimonials, it is clear that this organization supports conversion at best or suppression and celibacy at least. While my mother states she will love any man I choose to spend my life with, she will always believe I could have chosen a different path. I was sent to conversion therapy as a child and would have never imagined my mom would suggest something similar again. Oof. I thought that even with our differences, we were past that. This has brought all the spiritual differences in my family roaring up. My brother is furious. My sister is trying to calm the waters with love the sinner, hate the sin stuff. My mom's a wreck, thinking she'll never see me again. My dad is being surprisingly supportive and wants the family to stay together. I don't want the family to break up. I want to be a part of my nieces and nephews' lives. I want to be an example of a kind, successful, loving, gay uncle, brother, son, etc. But I also can't take the keep my head down any longer. I'm 30 years old for flying spaghetti monsters' sake. This loved but dirty and broken feeling is something I left behind when I left the religion and I'm not going back. How can I stand up for myself and try to find a middle ground? Man, middle kid. Uh, first of all, I'm sorry that you're going through this. This is a this is a rough thing to deal with. And I have a little bit, I mean, I don't have your exact experience, but I definitely have felt the lash of rejection from parents and uh, you know, based on you know, not conforming to a particular religious ideology, let's say the least. And you know, and when I was reading this, a couple of things like jumped out at me. This whole hate the belief, love the believer thing. Like, they never consider what that feels like if it's turned around. Like, man, I hate churches. I hate the cross. Praying in public is actually disgusting to me. Like, when I think about priests sprinkling holy water on babies' heads, it makes me gag. But Christians love them. Oh my God, the thought of going to a priest in a tiny little booth and telling him my deepest, darkest secrets so he can tell me that I'm for, forgiven, it makes my skin crawl. Just the thought of what they do in those confessional booths is sickening, but I don't have a problem with Christians. I love them. Like, it doesn't, f if you say it like that, it doesn't fucking work. And if you would. Right, it's a, it's a kind of like compartmentalization. Yeah. And I, and I wonder if like you could maybe gently frame it that way to your mom like mirror whatever language she's using with you in terms of their beliefs and just express and, and how they're expressing that to you to back to them and when they get upset say hey okay look i don't actually think this way because i don't i don't that's not how i feel about any of these christian beliefs if in case you're wondering it's more of me just trying to put that mental it's trying to mirror that, that that language back um but if you could say like you know, this is how you make me feel when you act this way. You think these things um, and then ask them, like, how do you think we should proceed forward with this information? Because the real problem is I feel, I feel like a lot of Christians, most Christians being the dominant cultural group in the United States, just really have no idea how hurtful the things they say to us are because they workshop these phrases like love the sin or hate the sin or Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven in their own little kind of bubbles and they think, oh, wow, yeah, that sounds good. That's really deep. That's profound. That's that's the that's the perfect way to say it. And then when that lands outside their bubble, it's like a goddamn bomb. And they're just like bewildered about why is this person so angry? Why is this? You know, you're, you're describing your mom as being like torn up about uh, like I'm a wreck thinking, but she did this, right. like she did this and is actively doing this, but she's worried that the actions that she's taking that have predictable consequences are going to have the 
consequences that she probably could have foreseen and it's 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 strange and it must be so such a much so much cognitive dissonance for you to sort through right and i'm i'm sorry that you had to go to conversion therapy when you were a child and the fact that she would try to send you back or suggest something similar feels like a just a fundamental misunderstanding yeah but I had, you know, I had a Christian friend when I was, um, that I thought was pretty supportive of me when I was going through, you know, my kind of conversion to more secular things. And they seemed very supportive, but I noticed this pattern of every single time I'd have a setback and it's usually around like a heartbreak. They would be like, well, have you considered that like, maybe this is a result of you fucking around and not being out, you know, living outside God's laws. And it was always like jarring to me, like, so, you know, like it, it always, it, it, I realize it's like, are they spending their entire time when we're talking, commiserating, just kind of like, you know, thinking, biting their tongues and thinking, well, just wait, just wait when this blows up in your face, I can pounce with a, I told you so or something. I mean, that's just, just, it didn't feel very friendly. It didn't feel very brotherly. Right. No one wants to feel like they're just being tolerated. And I mean, I'd hate for this to break up your entire family, but it seems like something you might need to talk to both your sister and your mother about maybe at the same time. See, I was thinking since dad seems like he's a little bit supportive, maybe if you could find a way to to talk to dad one on one and just have a heart to heart and be like, I don't know. I don't I know that mom doesn't think that this is the way I'm taking it. But when she says these things, this is how she makes me feel. And it wasn't cool. And I know you guys didn't know any better. But like as an adult, I'm looking back and this conversion therapy stuff is just really hateful and wrong. And maybe you can provide provide him some literature, um, you know, with because uh, there's this is well, this is well studied. Right. Like, there's or, tons of peer reviewed research about how what a bunch of horse shit these conversion therapy things are. Maybe you can help him and then he can find a way to tell that truth with love. And be kind of, you know, sometimes it's like you got to, you know, be firm with the like if I was just trying to think of like if you were alienating my son, you know, in our relationship, there'd be a point where I'd have to be pretty firm about like you got to knock this shit off or it's going to affect our relationship. This isn't just you and this kid. It's also you and me and this kid. Um, I don't maybe he can be an ally that right. way. Yeah. And like I said, it, when it seems like a kind of compartmentalization where she thinks that it's something that you can just like not engage in or turn off. And maybe she just, they don't have an understanding of what goes on in these support groups and these camps that you're being sent to. Maybe they're just not even considering the emotional aspect. Maybe there's someone in the church that they go to that's putting a lot of pressure on them. This peer pressure is a lot of it too. So ask, yeah, I don't know, turn it around on her. Tell her to not talk about her religious beliefs and just not practice them but still believe it in your heart just don't talk about it or practice it out loud or anything and see if that's something she'd be amenable to no then yes you're you know the person you choose to love you can't do the same thing with yeah and i mean it's also i think really telling that this love to sin or hate to sin almost exclusively comes out in terms of talking about homosexuality Mm -hmm. Like, I don't, I've never seen this, I've never seen, like, an alcoholic referred this way. I've never seen a habitual liar referred this way. I've never seen an adulterer, sexual predator. I've never, ever, (laughs) ever seen this. It's only so they can take this bizarre cognitive dissonant middle stand between what they think their religion demands. Um, And he also, it's like, he also, like, look at the stuff that Jesus really got worked up about. 
it's almost like the time where he really got his sh- tongue sharpened and spit fire was always about religious hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. The time he braided a whip and started whipping people out of the temple is when they, you know, were, were cynically taking advantage of people and finan- like in, in, in less favorable financial uh, situations in the name of God. And when uh, Pharisees were oppressing the poor people while living rich lifestyles themselves and not living up to the things they're not practicing what they preach. It wasn't about you know he he never like just preached fire and damnation against people just trying to live their lives so i i don't know there's a lot of ways you can attack this from a christian framework but ultimately what they're doing is not cool it's emotional abuse you're being emotionally abused by your parents and they need to stop it is the bottom line yeah there shouldn't be an i love you but it should just be an i love you but just so you know and it's just like you know it's early on in our vice podcast like um my mom's disowned me I have a fairly cool relationship with my dad. I mean, we have our differences, but it it seems like it's based on kind of mutual respect and we can talk through like political and religious and personal differences. And I, I would say that your relationship with your parents is pretty strained too. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also live pretty full and rich lives. So like it's sometimes not the worst thing if this is as bad as you say and is making your life miserable to take a step back from this and put up some boundaries and maybe even some walls to protect yourself because you can still live a pretty full life without, I know that's very painful and I'm not saying it's not, but it's already painful. Right. And if the situation's not going to get better. So anyway, I, uh, I'm I'm thinking about you. I'm rooting for you. I hope, uh, I hope you can, I I hope some of this helps middle kid because it's a rough situation. You have my, my sympathy and respect. Let's talk about a wayward daughter now. Uh, Aaron, I'm really interested in hearing more about your transition out of fundamentalist Christianity into secular atheism. I grew up hyper-religious in a family where identity was defined by being Christian in communities of spiritual elitism. All my friendships of value were built on a foundation of Christianity, and 80% of my extracurricular activities were with the church, and ideologically, I was all in. I had eternal cosmic purpose. I was supposed to be a loving, submissive wife like the church is to Christ. I was supposed to see my highest calling as being a wife, a mother, and a caring friend. Did you experience the waywardness of losing the rigid structure and direction for your life that comes with hyper-religiosity? Religiosity? And how did you get through that? I feel like I no longer have a basis for my morality. I don't have a purpose, and I don't know what my dreams are. How did you build these things up for yourself outside the framework for... Uh, the church. Um, well, wayward, I'm going to recommend that you go to baldmove.com slash about. And there are a couple of podcasts there where we talk explicitly about leaving uh, the religion. And I think I've, you know, it's hours and hours of, of uh, uh, content there. And I, I don't really want to repeat myself, but I'll summarize a couple of things because the question you're asking is as exciting as it is scary because there's emotional kind of levels to these realizations or at least there was for me as a as a as a self-described true believer like wait there's no rules holy shit there's no rules and then kind of like the dreadful fear like oh my god there's no rules and you by your own admission have filled your head with ideas someone else has had for how you should live your life for what 10 15 20 years probably and I feel like it's a surprise when I'd say this to people, but it might take you 5, 10, 15, 20 years to find a workable moral theory for your new life. I'm not saying you're going to be adrift that whole time, but like crystallizing how you should live and want to live your life is 
an entire lifetime's worth of effort. And you, I think you should read philosophy, maybe study other religions, uh, pay attention to any atheist or secular communities you engage with, because there's a lot of great ones that are loving and empathetic and support, uh, supportive and positive. And there's a lot of others that are kind of smug, douchey ones. So you kind of want to quickly suss out which community you're getting with. But I also think that like, for me, it was important that I felt safe because I know a lot of people assume that I'm this huge libertine when it comes to sex and drugs, and that's a correct assumption. But I did get to my 30s, disease, addiction, and unwanted pregnancy free, and I didn't want to fuck that up. So it was important for me while I was finding my philosophical and political and moral framework that I, I kept myself safe, right? Um, so I, I studied up about safe sex. I read up on practical guides to the different things that I wanted to try and experiment with. I read up on other people's experiences. And I, and this is like, I, I think this is good advice for if you're trying to find a good coffee maker or, uh, you know, uh, some, some new sexy activity that you want to try, but to, to read up on the experiences, not just the ones that confirm your belief, of what you want to do, but the ones where like talk about the ways things can go wrong or the ways things can be dangerous or how they can fuck up your relationships. Um, I studied up on like drugs on sites like Arrowwood, E-R-O-W-I-D.org and looked up each drug I considered taking before I did it. Uh, I looked into the recommended initial doses. I looked into how to test them to make sure that they were safe. Uh, I knew the risks and assessed soberly how I would feel if things went wrong and the risk and reward equation didn't fall in my favor. Like, could I live with myself if like I had the risk and didn't get the reward? Uh, and this meant that I missed out on some opportunities. I know for a fact that there are things I turned down in my early thirties that would have been super fucking fun and wouldn't have been as dangerous as I probably thought. Um, but I would rather have missed out on things than gotten things I didn't want. And, I think that, um, you know, I also had a young kid that I knew was going to depend on me to grow up with, a, you know, having a chance of having like some kind of rational free life. So I, I, I believed on erring on the side of caution and I kind of still do. So that's the that's the advice I have is I think a lot of this dread comes from the fact that there are no rules and it's dangerous and the world can be a cruel, depressing place out there. And it's free. It's full of people that might use you and abuse you and harm you. And job number one is finding people that will support and protect and love you and find frameworks in your life that allow you to explore the, 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 the dangerous and alluring and pleasurable parts of life in a progressive and safe way instead of just kind of jumping in it for with with both feet i i I don't know if that helps but that's what helped me is like you know fundamentally i have a conservative outlook on life and that has kind of saved me from just like rushing in and doing some stupid shit although i have done my fair share of stupid shit and i have done my fair share of rolling the dice on occasion Mm -hmm. okay our next email is from off the grid and off the grid says hey cna i'm enjoying one weird trick and thought your advice regarding depression depression was really good one thing i thought about that wasn't mentioned is for anyone suffering from depression to stay off of social media it may seem impossible in today's world but there are considerable clinical links between the use of social media and depression Uh, off the grid included a couple of links to studies where they found this correlation not causation to be true and quotes from that source 
After surveying more than 1,700 young adults aged 19 to 32 across the U.S., the researchers found a strong association between social media use and increased risk of depression. Personally, I have deactivated Facebook and temporarily deleted the Twitter and Instagram apps so that I could focus on my mental health, and the results have been very positive. Um, absolutely, it's true that that depression is uh, not helped by social media and seeing all these better lives that people are living and how much uh, prettier, wealthier, happier, or more fulfilled, more fulfilled, whatever that they are, because you probably feel that without being depressed already. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of the nature of social media. But for some people, it can be a helpful resource where they can feel like they can connect with people and find a sense of community. Yeah. But that's that's really helpful. Up until advice. the last few months, I because I've I've disact- deactivated my Facebook account. I keep a like a bare bones one so I can interact with bald move stuff if I need to. I got rid of my personal Twitter a long time ago. I've recreated it in the last couple months because you know you got a lot to say got i got a lot to say um but i do if, if you ever see me like just like completely go radio silence for three or four days on any social media it's almost always because someone did something to piss me off or was shitty to me and i love i mean i love our community and i like entertaining people and i like making people laugh and i like making people think but it's not worth my mental health when for someone to come in on like a Saturday morning when I'm getting ready to make pa- pancakes for my family to just come and shit on me. And like, not only do I block and delete that shit, but it's like, you know what? Maybe this is enough social media for the weekend. And I think that's really important. And I can't believe some of the people that I follow on social media that have uh, reaches 10, 20, 100,000 times bigger than me. Like, I don't know how they manage it. Um, some of these communities that, 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 that like, are, you know, tweeting on daily basis, tweeting on controversial topics, uh, never taking a day off. Uh, but then again, I'm also like Patreon supporters, a lot of these people. And I know that they're also kind of wrecks emotionally a lot of the time. I'll let the one of the hit, one of the, one of the dirty little secrets about online content generation is a lot of these content creators are just personal wrecks because of these parasocial relationships and because all the negative things you're talking about here off the grid. And we'll post these uh, we'll post these uh, uh, these links in our, our show notes if, if people want to peruse them themselves. So social media is great. It can make you feel connected. It can give you a voice. Uh, it's a great way to organize, but you have to make sure you're using it and it's not using you. Right, exactly. And don't ever be afraid to fuck all this. Plug like if 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 you are finding yourself relying for your emotional self esteem on those likes and the views and stuff, man, you're you're already setting yourself up for shipwreck. So you, so taking a step back is, I think, a healthy thing for for people to do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Go take a go take a long hike. <laughs> yeah. Fuck fuck Twitter. Fuck Facebook. Uh, let's talk with keeping Austin weird. I'm in a band and the bass player just quit. We're having a particularly feisty argument about how to play a certain cover. The rhythm guitar player, which he will refer to as RG, is a one-upper and extremely dismissive of others' opinions and can be very condescending. I am the better player, and that's not debatable, but whether he takes charge of a cover, he has the edge. He was in a a cover band for a long time, and we end up learning the songs that he already knows. 
During an argument, he was being unbearable. I was playing the right notes, but the pattern wasn't quite there yet, and he was his usual nasty, rude, condescending self saying things like, tell me exactly what you're playing, or you're trying to play, and I will adjust to that since you can't play it right. Things escalated. The singer stepped up and dropped some info about the bass player leaving. RG and I clashing egos. Uh, the bassist hated feeling the tension between us. That hit me hard and made me stop and think. I thought, hey, the bass player was right. I often find myself biting my lip because he does something rude or takes a song into a weird direction. I'm not a big fan of his writing either. And I know this probably shows in my face. In the middle of this self-reflection, the RG suddenly says, I don't think I have an ego at all. There are infinite examples of this guy being like this, but he is my friend and I love how we make music most of the time. We live in Austin and I've been able to play shows at Stubbs, Mohawk, and several other awesome venues. But now that I found out that I was at least partially to blame for our friend leaving the band, I feel like it's something that I don't want to be part of anymore. How do I deal with reconciling these events? I would love to be able to talk through this and come out more committed. RG also uses my practice amp as his was stolen. He was paid insurance money to reimburse himself, but is happy to just use mine and rent one when we gig. But this makes it more difficult for me to practice at home since I leave my big amp at the practice space. How do you deal with people like this? That is, that's a tough one. It's going to, well, it seems like you've already done the hard part, which is reflecting on your own failures here. Not even failures. But your own misgivings. What did you bring? Maybe. What did you bring? What what gasoline did you bring to the fire? Yeah. So someone brought to your attention that the way you were behaving wasn't great. And you were immediately able to identify that it wasn't great. And it's affected other people. RG needs to make this same revelation. Um, and I don't know that it's going to happen in front of everyone during a practice. Mm -hmm. But... It might help if the two of you get together independently, maybe schedule some outside of the all band practice to practice, but also really talk about your egos. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like you are, are the better player, as you say, and it sounds like maybe you are usually used to taking the lead and this is where he, this other person would excel. So... I mean, a lot of these egos and like talking down to people is that this is his chance or her chance to really excel in this one area. Mm -hmm. So maybe we should give them the credit they're due. You're doing a great job. You're really good at this. This is something that you're great at and I'm willing to listen. But, you know, I'd appreciate you speak to me in a respectful manner or maybe we not fight about it or maybe we can have these independent practice sessions. Those are a few things you could try to do. I'm not sure how interested the bassist is in coming back, but That's other it thing. seems like, like the bassist could have talked to you guys first before just quitting. Maybe you can call it because I think that this this is a I don't know. It seems like a ma I always feel like when the friend group is then there's two friends that are bickering. Um, it's kind of a moral act of co cowardice to be like, I don't like this tension. I'm out of here because someone's got to be right and someone's got to be wrong. And it's 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 also a, a bad situation. But I don't know, because there's some people are so conflict avoidance that they can't like say call a spade a spade and be like, you know, you're being an asshole. Stop being an asshole. Um, and sometimes like when I've been the person who's calling out an asshole, like I get conflict from the group about like, why are you making ways? Because um, I guess they were just uh, uh, happy with going along with the abuse. Here's my take. 
so r slash relationships is reddit's largest like advice column subreddit and a common refrain when people outside that community talk about it is well the only advice they give is just leave and the sooner is the better and i think there's some truth in that because a lot of the advice you get in r slash relationships is this is bad you should run get away etc cetera, etc cetera. but the larger truth is that 90 percent of these advice posts are along the lines of I've been in a relationship with 10 years and I noticed trends in the beginning of the relationship that were bad and made me feel bad but I didn't say anything because I loved them so much and I wanted to make it work and now things have gotten worse and worse and worse and I can't continue but I can't leave what should I do the solution is at the first sign of an annoyance a quirk a conflict and I, again be reasonable you know we're not talking like like the first sign of things that really makes you like takes takes you aback or offends you or gets you angry is to make a decision right there to either say something or let it go forever because if you let it go you got you you can't just then like well okay i'm just gonna let it go and it's not gonna bug me and then you know three months later like blow up because you've been swallowing all this rage and frustration and stuff um, you know, the first time it's like, you know, it's not a big deal. It's happened the first time you can be like, Hey, there's an expectation. This is my expectation. What was your expectation? You can kind of hash this stuff out. But when it's an entrenched situation where you've got like six different things holding over this guy's head, you know, to unpack that stuff, even if he just sits there and listens to you talk about like, you know what? I'm pissed about the amp. I'm pissed about the way you deride my playing experience. I'm pissed the fact that you lack the self introspection to realize that you were partially to blame. You know, like there's no way for any reasonable person, even if they were like Gandhi or Jesus Christ to hear that and not take offense. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but the, 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 the other thing is, that just because you do that, I'm not saying that like if you at the first opportunity in a relationship conflict, try to work through that conflict means that you're going to keep the relationship. That's not how this advice works. What it means is you say something early on and if the if that causes the relationship to end, then you've saved yourself from wasting time in a bad relationship and you've freed up your space to make good relationships. Um so it might be too late to save this relationship with the rhythm guitarist. It might be too late to save the relationship with the bassist. But like if years ago when this first started, what if you'd said something and then the band flies apart? Well, you've had a few years to find a new band. You wouldn't have gotten to yourself to this like emotional place where you just want to like quit it all and it's draining on you. And you might have been able to find other creative people that you work with naturally or, or like a like a group that won't tolerate an asshole. Um there's just a lot. I mean, like I said, some of this relation advice, because you can't make people do what you want them to do. You can't make people feel and you can't make people change when they want to change. All you can do is change your own circumstances or how you view it. And changing circumstances, a lot of times walking away. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't want to hear that. A lot of people want to know what is the phrase I can say? What is the technique I can use to make the person see my reality from my point of view perfectly? And that's just a fantasy. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, might be too late, but I think what Cecily said about, you know, certainly circling back with the lead singer, trying to meet with the other band members individually and say, like, honestly, what do you think about the situation? What can I do to make things better? Uh, try to work things out, the, uh, the rhythm guitarist, but it might not work. And the quicker you find that out, the better everyone's going to be. Yeah, exactly. And you're all better people for any future relationships you have. Yeah. Of the sort. 
the next one we have here is from who I'm calling the Bachelor Buckeye. Um, Bachelor Buckeye says, I'm coming to you because I'm at a loss of what to do. I turned 30 this year, and as I've seen all of my friends pair up over the years, I'm reminded of how alone I've been, relationship-wise, for basically my entire adult life. I've had one girlfriend in my life for about a year when I was 19 or 20, and she was 17 or 18, but even then, we weren't what any adult would call sexually active, so you can take that however you like on the relationship scale. They just did mouth stuff. That's how I'm taking it. (laughs) The poop hole loophole. (laughs) Now, I don't have a problem making friends. People seem to love me. And until my most recent move three years ago, I've had no trouble making good friends. Now, I've had some random hookups after a party or a night out, but never with the same girl twice. And still, that's not what I'm looking for anyway. And anytime I approach a woman, whether it be a coworker, an acquaintance, a friend, or a stranger, believe me, I've tried them all. With romantic interest, it's an absolute non-starter from her, and she's clearly uncomfortable in the situation. Uh, I'm also starting to worry that at my age, my lack of experience is going to be a problem with any woman of a similar age range. It's also worth pointing out that I grew up as the only black family, my mom and I, in a small rural Ohio village, so I never really fit in the black community once I grew up and moved to a city. I've always gravitated towards the people who looked familiar to me from where I grew up. Well, I can give you a maybe a positive story because, boy, I was in your exact same position because uh, <laughs> I entered the dating world about in my early 30s and I had had one previous serious relationship, which was a marriage that I got into when I was 19 going on 20 and I'd never had a sexual experience with a woman before that. And I was able to, I think, recover nicely. Um, but I totally relate to the fear uh, that because I felt the same way. I had no problems making friends. Um, I had no problems making friends with men and women. But like I didn't know how to interpret signals. I didn't know how to make myself like how to maximize my positives and minimize my negatives and you know go out and just have a really you know how do you go to make the sexy times with the people that you (laughs) like when you like them um so i was seeing a therapist and one thing he said that seemed crazy at the time was like aaron do you have a male friend or an acquaintance at work or somebody that you know that is successful with women and i did I did. I worked with this guy who was this uh, uh, like a guy in, in the the sales department. He's a salesman. And he just had that kind of like charisma, charisma. And I noticed that like he was very successful with women. And not only is he successful with women, but like even the women that got out of relationships with him would kind of talk to him, talk about him and kind of like size. And like it sounded like it was purely positive relationships. Like when they break up, it wasn't like that fucking guy. He did this, that. Uh, you know, they didn't shit talk him. So I asked him if he'd go out with lunch with me. And then I asked him to have sex with me so that I would know. Uh, and I actually kind of laid this out. Uh, you know, we had some small talk cause we had never, you know, cause he'd always kind of like, you know, very loud and brash and funny. Um, he could say, I, I could say, so this, this is my buddy, Nick. Um, and like, he's just like, it's, he's, I always have, was confounded by him. Cause like, we'd go to like a, like a, a, a work wedding and he'd show up and he's always looking flashy and he hit the dance floor and he would like, I don't think he's a very good dancer, but he's very expressive and confident. And he would do these like routines with like people. And like, I, I, 
but, but I looked around and nobody was like, oh, Jesus Christ, this guy. Everybody was like laughing and clapping and he was entertaining people. So he had advice for you over lunch. So he had advice for me over lunch. And uh, I did, I did, he didn't actually have advice for me. I just said, hey, I see that you're really good with women and I don't feel like I am. And I wonder, like, can you tell, can you help me? Like, what are some things I can do? I, I need, I need like, like a big brother. Like, these are stuff that your dad should probably help you with. You're like a big brother. But I never had that kind of thing. Uh, my dad's kind of hopeless with women, too. And my brother's younger and he doesn't speak to me. So he kind of like, you know, yeah, all right. And he started giving me advice and talking about and, you know, like, like give me really solid advice about how I can be better relation, you have better relationships with women and be more charming. And, and, and also, but it's very hard for me to give general advice to you, Bachelor Buckeye, because I don't know. Are you like slim? Are you thick? Are you tall? Are you short? Are you conventionally masculine in presentation? Are you more androgynous? Are you what kind of what women? What kind of women you do you look- like? Do you like them slim or thick or yeah. tall or short? Because yeah. like I like I'm covered in body hair, and that's just a fucking deal breaker to a lot of women. And I could wax my back and get electrolysis and lay and try to go after the women that you know, are not into who I am or I could lean into the beast man qualities and brush those up and, and accentuate those things and find the girls that find that stuff sexy and attractive and, and try to land one of those. That's a strategy that's worked out pretty well for me. <laughs> uh, so like to give you better advice, I'd have to kind of like look you look at you, your situation, find out the women that you're attracted to. And these are things like Nick and I talked like we have a friend. In fact, Nick's still one of my closest friends. Like we live in two different cities now, but we're always texting each other and checking up with each other. We visit from time to time. And this really took this wasn't something that like it's not like Will Smith, the love doctor in that one movie where it's like he took was it Kevin James and gave him like three different things. And that it was like over the course of months and like me trying things and then going back and giving like okay well here's how it went and this is what went wrong he's like ah well and sometimes i had to push back because like sometimes i felt that he was like pushing me in the more of his direction like flashy and like with your 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 beard line just so and with your clothes and i'm like that's not who i am and but, but i think the finding a guy friend like that is invaluable and since you make friends very easily mm-hmm. maybe that's something you can find a person who's willing to take you on as like a little brother project and and help you out not be your wingman because that's nothing that's something nick never did for me like we didn't hit the club and like you know <laughs> right. he'd do all the hard work and just steer me towards a hard luck case it's just like you know advice and like uh you know, positive, critical, like a like a look at your situation. Yeah. And, what are your positive qualities? What do you have to offer? And yeah, build off of that. Yeah, because if it's you know, it's like obvious. It, this hasn't been obvious to you. Sometimes I, there's some people that are born with just knowing this stuff. They're very naturally charismatic. Although the thing I learned about Nick is being this charismatic and likable is an effort. It's an effort, and I would never work as hard to be likable as he does, and I'm ne- I'll never be as charismatic as, as likable as him, but that's okay, you know? Yeah, and this is some advice that I gave to a girlfriend of mine who hasn't had much success, but she's been using a lot of the online apps, which mm-hmm. is another way. If you are just relying on finding people in person, then technology's already figured it out for you. They've got it down to a literal science. <laughs> yeah, but, but if you don't... If you- are not having luck meeting up with the kind of people that you want to meet up with and yeah. try out some people that you wouldn't have tried out before. Mm-hmm. Maybe try to strike up conversations that are in a non-romantic way and 
or in a romantic way with people that you wouldn't normally talk to and just kind of try it out that way. See what your successes and failures are and maybe, you know, your tastes can align better that way too. And that's the other thing is like with online dating is like if you don't know what makes you attractive, then you're unlikely to pick a profile picture that accentuates that. You're unlikely to have a bio that like leans into those things. Um, but if you know what makes yourself what 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 makes you feel confident and attractive, then you can accentuate that, and then those signals will be picked up by the people that are receptive to that. And but yeah, uh, that's 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 what I've got for you right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully, you can find that dude uh, that can help you out. Uh, and uh, yeah, good good luck with that. Yeah, good luck. Keep us updated. All right, last email, anon al anonymous. So I've recently started. It sounds like a Batman supervillain. <laughs> like this is the you know calls calls him the great you know the the great detective, and he's always trying to slink off to immortality pits. Anon Al Anonymous says. So I've recently started uh, attending Al Anon meetings. I don't really have a running alcoholic in my life, but a lot of my issues and habits that I'm trying to sort out were shaped by reacting to a lot of illness and an excess of prescription drugs and my surroundings in my childhood. The thing is that Al-Anon adopts the 12 steps from Alcoholics, Alcoholics Anonymous more or less word for word, and the God thing is a little sticky for me. I consider myself a somewhat spiritual person, but I'm uncommitted. Mostly I'm drawn towards nature and balance. Where I get into trouble in trying to embrace what they're all about has to do with kind of giving yourself over, quote unquote, to a higher power. I don't really see myself as being guided by a force, just that there is some awesome force that exists and kind of holds things together, you know? Oh, I know. I do appreciate what people get out of this and that no specific religion is a prerequisite, and I want to get in on that kind of clarity, but I can't really bend my mind to that place where I can give into something that will pull me along and is kind of a cornerstone of their trip. Do you have any advice on trying to uh, reconcile these issues? Uh, do you have any? Because I actually, I, I have a, I had an atheist friend that talked to me explicitly about this, but I want to know what you had to bring first. I've been to some NA meetings. A friend of mine growing Is that up, Narcanon? yeah, okay. Uh, a friend of mine growing up had some substance abuse issues, so I would go to those meetings with her to help. Um, I've sat through a few Alcoholics Anonymous classes. And it seems like that's a big, that's a sticking point for a lot of people The uh, you know, humble yourself in front of God type of thing. And they always say that giving yourself over to a higher power doesn't necessarily have to be God. It can just be the, you know, the universal energy saying that, you know, this is out of my control and I'm going to give over to someone else. And it doesn't have to be God. It could just be, you know, anything <laughs> the air I don't know it doesn't seem to work for me either I don't I don't like that first step yeah but I think what you can do is just replace that with the idea that there there is a problem that you're seeking help for mm-hmm. and, um oh by, by the way Narconon is actually a Scientology outfit don't oh, is don't, it? don't do that it's it's it, in a something else there's, it's there's narcotics anonymous is it uh-huh. um so yeah just don't don't go to the Scientology one um so there's a website that I found on alcohol.org that has five different alternatives to the AA approach. And I'm not familiar with any of them, but I was reading through some of them. Some of them seem interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm going to post that in the show notes if you want to look at this, Al Anon Anonymous. Uh, but my, so my atheist friend, because I, I asked him this very same question, he, he had a lot of success through uh, 
Alcoholics Anonymous, and he said that his group was a pretty light touch about this. I know that some of them are churchier than others, mm-hmm. um, but his reconciliation had him recognize this higher power as like the inherent chaos of the universe that he was powerless before. Uh, the circumstances of his birth, his parents, his upbringing, his genetics, these all combined to be a struggle for him. Mm-hmm. And he had no control over it. Uh, you know, None of those things are in anyone's control, right? Um, this was his higher power uh, that he was powerless before. It wasn't like uh, a humble, a humility before God, but more of an acceptance of the things in his past that he couldn't change, which allowed him to uh, work on himself, mm-hmm. you know, and like see, like, like, like see these things that were trying to pull him back as divorced and separate from him. And maybe that can help, but like, I don't know the particular group that you're in, if they're like really pushing the higher power stuff, I can see that being kind of sticky. I think that a lot of the benefit from Alcoholics Anonymous or any of these 12 step programs is essentially meeting in a structured way with other people going through similar issues. And I don't think that the 12 steps are that important. In fact, if you look into it, um, there I think is a higher rate of recidivism among Alcoholics Anonymous than there is in a variety of competing methods, and also just a ver- <laughs> also just above baseline meeting with like a men's support group. Absolutely, my friend. It turns out was abusing substances the whole time we were going to those meetings. Yeah. Um, and I'm not gonna say that it's that that's where a place where you can connect or find drugs yeah. or stay. You know, yeah. it helps some people. Because I've gone through two different but, general like men support groups mm-hmm. where the framework was a, a, a accountability to each other and honesty and confidentiality. And to the extent that like you had if you want to leave the group, you had to give a you had to give one week notice and um, have an exit visit where everyone around the group said what they thought about you leaving the group. And then, you know, you obviously were free to go. This wasn't. <laughs> This wasn't involuntary committal, but like a lot of times when people were leaving is because they were ready to go on. You know, we they they had been in the group for a while and they were in a stable place and they had stayed long enough to pass some of their wisdom and support to other people. But it's time for them to move on. And when the way we're around the group, everybody's like very happy for you, X. Uh, we've seen so many great changes you've made and you've been a really good friend. And a lot of those friendships I maintain out of the group. Uh, but then there's a couple times where people clearly were not ready and we, they had been honest with us and we were honest with them about like, man, I think this is a bad move for you. I think you need this group. I think this group is good and you haven't made the changes necessary that you're ready to, to kind of fly by yourself. And a lot of times they, you know, left anyway. And sometimes they stayed. And so maybe you could find something just. Um, yeah. If, I mean, if substance abuse isn't exactly the issue, even though that's something that's been uh, formative in your life, mm-hmm. at least in the past, then, yeah, just find there's got to be other support groups in that area. I'm not sure exactly where you're from to recommend any. Yeah, you could call some therapists, like just uh, and not ask yeah. for personal therapy. Say, hey, do you know anyone that's running like a, a a general support group or a support group around this that that's not? And you know, like maybe you have to call a dozen of them or so, but a lot of them run their own little workshops and groups. So I don't know, maybe some of that uh, can help you out. But Mm -hmm. I'll I'll post this, uh, these alternatives that all have links to national organizations that you can find local chapters. I mean, that's where, that's where these things are nice because you don't have to call and do your own legwork. You can just like call up, you know, Oh, I like this program. What's the chapter in my area where, and if they're close, you just start attending meetings and takes all the guesswork out of it. Mm -hmm. So, but uh, good for you. 
for taking a step forward for your your mental and emotional health. Yeah. And that is enough weird tricks for this week. <laughs> we will be back in two more weeks to talk about even more ways that we can live better, fuller, stronger, healthier lives uh, with weird tricks that we share along the way. If you would like to ask for advice on a sticky issue that you're having, please send that in to one weird trick. OWT rather OWT at swizzbold.com follow along on all of our social medias at swizzbold unless social media is your problem and stay the hell away <laughs> yeah. block that shit delete that shit but if you like it follow that shit at swizzbold uh, you can follow our podcast at swizzbold.com again we'll be back in two weeks with lots more to talk about sound a little bit like Fred Rogers there <laughs> yeah. you'll have things you want to talk about okay. I will Two bum bum bum. Yep, and remember we like you just the way you are. That's right, neighbor. Uh we'll see you in two weeks. Until then, I'm Aaron. I'm Cecily. Bye.